2006, March 7th. Today is Lecture 41, Dark Matter and Dark Energy, which will begin in just a moment. All right, today is Lecture number 41 on Dark Matter and Dark Energy. Today begins with a sort of a simple premise. It's at the it's sort of at the frontiers, again, is of astronomy, where, which is the topic of this week's lectures. One of the things we get when we look around us, we really sort of are sensible of stuff, of matter. And nothing seems more substantial than the Earth itself. Or you sit there and you can tap a table, or you can even tap yourself. Heck, even the air seems substantial. You wave your arms back and forth, and you actually feel like you're surrounded with matter. There is radiation, there is photons, but we're, we're only sensible of it as light, or maybe if you're listening to the radio or something. But, but really, to, to us, to our senses, the world is a material world. It's made up of matter, is what that really means. We went from ancient world thinking that the Earth was the center of the universe, and of course, since we were, the Earth was the center of the universe, we must be the sort of pillar of creation. And all those ideas that followed from that lasted for many thousands of years, until Copernicus rather rudely kicked us out of the center of the universe and placed us on yet another planet, in fact, a rather small planet when it comes compared to the other planets in our solar system, orbiting around the sun. Okay, so we kind of came to terms with the fact that we were no longer the center of the universe, but we were pretty sure we had a good feel on what that universe was made of. In the last few years, we've come to a rather more startling conclusion, and that is the material world that we're all used to, of baryons, of protons, and neutrons, and electrons, is not, in fact, most of the stuff of the universe. In fact, we are made of a small minority of the actual important constituents of the universe, and if that wasn't enough, if we think like matter is the expression of the universe as we're learning in recent years, in fact, it may in fact be energy that's becoming steadily more important. In fact, it may be the energy of nothing, of empty space. And so today's lecture is going to look at what these forms of matter and energy are. We call them dark matter and dark energy. The key idea is, is that dark matter is matter that we cannot see directly with light. It does not produce light. It does not inter interact with light passing through it. It doesn't do anything with light. It only interacts with other matter through its gravity, which turns out to be the important part, or maybe through something like the weak nuclear force. But it doesn't interact with electromagnetic force, which means it doesn't see light at all. Most of the matter of the universe appears to be in the form of this mysterious, what we call, dark matter. Dark because we can't see it. By proportion, roughly 26% of the critical density of the universe is made up of dark matter, of which, compared to less than 4% for stars and all the matter we look around us combined. So we're less than one-sixth, in fact, we're one-seventh part of the material part of the universe. Well, if that wasn't enough, there's also something that recently has come to be called dark energy. Now, some people like the word dark energy, some don't, but it sort of nicely alliterates with dark matter, so I'll keep it. It is the vacuum energy of the universe. It's the energy of nothing. Well, that seems like a contradiction in terms. How can nothing have energy? This is actually now a quantum mechanical concept. Empty space actually has a certain amount of energy associated with it. And much to our surprise, if that in fact is the correct interpretation of the observations, this dark energy is what we think is responsible for the observed acceleration of the universe, why the universe appears to be expanding at a faster and faster rate through cosmic time. What is dark energy? We actually know less about the nature of dark energy than dark matter, as we'll see in just a moment. So today's topic is to look at, actually sort of near the end of this class, the stuff that the universe is really made of, and guess what? It ain't us. 
To understand this, we have to go back a couple of lectures, a couple of weeks, to back to when we talked about galaxies and spiral galaxies. And what we saw in there is that spiral galaxies are a disk galaxy. They've got a central disk made of, of gas and stars, especially young stars forming in the disk, and it's with a central bulge and embedded in a gigantic halo of very, very faint stars, old, metal-poor stars. That disk rotates around, kind of like a record, but different from a record in the sense that it's rotating differentially. It's a big, loose assembly of stars and gas, which is rolling around in a nice disk. I can measure the speed of rotation in that disk. I simply find stars or gas clouds that are emitting light. I measure the Doppler shift towards or away from me. And I can measure the actual speed of rotation. And I can form what's called a rotation curve, in which I plot distance from the center of galaxy and the orbital speed that I observe at that distance by measuring the Doppler shift of stars, gas clouds, and so forth. Here's a, a picture actually taken out of your textbook. It shows four representative rotation curves for four different galaxies. And you see that they all have a very similar pattern to them. In fact, some astronomers recently have thought that there is an entire family of universal rotation curves. And the various wiggles on top of these are just kind of local weather and local variation. But they can all boil down to a few basic patterns. We see that for the most part, what you see is the speed, the rotation orbital speed, rises very rapidly from near zero at the center, as close as we can get in to a maximum somewhere near just outwards moving out from the center of the disk. So you're still within the disk of starlight, and you're out here maybe 5, maybe 10 kiloparsecs from the center. But most rotation curves rise very rapidly and kind of peak out in the inner 5 to 10 kiloparsecs. They then become nearly constant or very, very slowly falling. Some of them, in fact, even continue. They dip a bit and continue to rise, like this green curve here or this red curve, are all sort of slowly rising back again to another peak, whereas this black curve up here on the top is slowly falling. This is what we observe. So it's a nearly very rapid rise in the center, followed by what we call, for lack of a better word, flat, or maybe with a slight slope on it at much larger radii. And these extend quite far out. These, these particular galaxies are measured almost as far out as 30 kiloparsecs. Remember that our sun is about 8 kiloparsecs from the center of our own Milky Way. And the rotation speed is about what you see here. For, for The sun is actually in a galaxy much like this green curve, has a rotation speed of about 220 kilometers per second, out located 8 kiloparsecs from the center of our Milky Way. Now, the fact that these things are rotating is the stars, the gas clouds that are doing the rotation around the center of the galaxy are sensing all of the matter in the galaxy. Remember, one of the first lessons we learned about measuring the masses of stars is that I can't weigh them like I weigh normal things. I can only measure masses by measuring the orbital motions due to the presence of matter in the influence of gravity. So gravity lets me measure mass. And in fact, I can use this information to weigh the galaxies. Weighing the galaxies, you might notice, for some of you looking at the notes, by the way, I, I somewhat altered the slide here because it didn't kind of work the way I had it originally. So I just sort of rearranged things a bit. If we weigh the galaxies, and I've stolen this slide from actually one of the earlier lectures, stars and gas clouds in the galaxy are held in their orbits by the gravity of the mass interior to, our, to your orbit. So what happens is if you measure the rotation speed at a given radius out from a galaxy, what you're really measuring is the mass that's interior to your orbit because the combined gravitational effect of all the matter that's outside of your orbit, either just beyond you or on the other side of your orbit from you, in the average cancels out. It's not exact, but it's close enough for our purposes here. 
So I can write down a very simple formula that the mass contained inside of an orbit of radius r is the rotation speed of that orbit squared times the radius divided by the gravitational constant, g. So that means if I plugged in here, for example, 220 kilometers per second for the rotation of the sun and 8 kiloparsecs for the radius of the sun from the galactic center folded around the units, I could actually estimate a number here. It's a few times 10 to the 10 solar masses for the amount of mass contained within the inner 8 kiloparsecs of the Milky Way. As I measure gas clouds further and further out, I can measure the mass enclosed within them until my gas clouds are so far out they effectively contain 99.9% of all the starlight and gas I see. And I would say, aha, I've measured the mass of that galaxy. That's a, that's a sort of a review topic from back when we talked about galaxies. But there's a detail here. Ooh, that should not have all built in one shot, but what the heck. What we find is, is that most of the mass of the stars, galaxies are brighter in their center than outside, and in fact the number of stars literally falls off exponentially from the center outwards. So if you add up where are most of the stars in a galaxy, you're going to find they tend to be inside a radius of about 10 kiloparsecs from the center. The sun is about 8 kiloparsecs from the center of the Milky Way, so it's in among the majority of stars. In fact, there are a lot more stars even further in from the Milky Way. Now if the stars were it, if the stars and the gas clouds combined were all the mass that made up the galaxy, then what I would expect is, as I went from the center and started working my way outwards, I would see greater and greater amounts of matter until I finally reached the point that every time I stepped out, most of the matter is already below my feet, so I'm only adding small increments to how much of the total stars and gas is below my feet. So what I would expect in that case is the rotation curve should rise in speed up to a maximum and then should begin to fall off because as I move further out, most of the mass is below me still. I may move out a big step, but I've only added 1% to the mass, but I've moved a big step further out. Force goes like 1 over distance squared. And so I should suddenly see myself following a Keplerian fall off, just like I see the orbit speed in the solar system fall off as I go from Mercury through Earth to Mars and out to Pluto because all the mass of the solar system is concentrated in the sun for the most part. So if I'm moving outwards in a galaxy, because most of the mass in the galaxy is concentrated towards the central 10 kiloparsecs, at about 10, 20 kiloparsecs, I would expect to eventually reach the point that most of the mass of the galaxy is concentrated in the center from the perspective of my orbit, so I should start falling off in my rotation speed. But that's exactly what I don't see. I don't see the rotation speed fall off as a simple Keplerian curve. What I see is the rotation curve for the most part stays flat, and sometimes it even keeps rising out to 30 kiloparsecs when I've gotten past where the stars have faded out against the background. So what's happening here, the way of putting it is if you look at a rotation curve, and I'll show a picture here in just a second, is that the outer parts of galaxies are rotating around their center. The stars and the gas clouds are orbiting around the galaxy faster than I would have expected if I added up all the mass in the stars and gas that I can see. Now the only way that something can orbit faster is if there's more mass interior to its orbit than I've count accounted for. Because the orbital speed depends, go back one slide, the orbital speed depends upon the mass times the radius. I turn this equation around. So what I get is there must be more matter there than I can see. Now adding a black hole to the center of the galaxy doesn't help. In the Milky Way, 
there's something like 10 to the 10 solar masses between us and the center of the Milky Way inside of the circle of the sun. The central black hole is only 10 to the 6 solar masses. So it's a small, tiny fraction. I could take away the central mass, central couple million solar mass black hole, wouldn't change the rotation speed of the sun one iota. So black holes don't help you, at least the supermassive ones. So what's going on? The way to illustrate this graphically is I've taken out one of those rotation curves. So this is a beautiful one from radio observations for a galaxy that extends out to 50 kiloparsecs from the center. If I simply followed the starlight and said, how fast should I be orbiting if I just counted the amount of mass in stars and gas, what I would get is this red curve that peaks out here at a little over, in this case, this particular galaxy peaks out in the center at about 6 kiloparsecs and then falls off as a more or less Keplerian rotation curve. It would just look exactly like the range of speeds with orbital radius in our solar system to a first approximation. And so what I see is once I get past the inner parts of the galaxy, when I get out beyond where most of the stars are, say out here at 30 kiloparsecs, the orbital speed out at 30 kiloparsecs is maybe six, is, is out here is observed to be about 220 kilometers per second, but the Keplerian prediction based on just simply making a mass model based on stars and gas would have predicted 60. So these stars and gas clouds are orbiting much faster than I would have predicted by adding up the visible matter in the galaxy. So what is the extra mass inside those outer orbits if it's not made of stars and gas? I can always see stars because, well, they're stars. They produce light. I can actually always see gas for the most part. I can f use various tracers to see molecular gas. Even when that gas is 10 degrees or 3 degrees Kelvin, I can still see it against the background of space using radio observations. And it simply doesn't add up. So where is the, what is the extra mass if it's not in the form of stars and gas? And the answer is the galaxies must have an extended dark matter halo. Or we're going to call them dark halos because we don't see them. We don't see their, their light at any wavelength. Not at x-rays, not at gamma rays, not at radio, not at visible light. So they're dark, and we think it's a halo. And the reason for thinking it's a halo is because that rotation curve stays flat, it's like you're moving out not in a disk of matter, but you're moving out through successive shells of a gigantic spherical distribution of matter. So the flatness of the rotation curve is actually a clue that you're looking at a spherical or quasi-spherical distribution of matter. But the stars aren't spherical. The stars are arranged in the plane at the disk of the galaxy. The properties of these dark halos, if I simply use the gravitational observations of the orbits of stars and gas clouds in the disks of the galaxies, I can actually infer a great deal about the properties of these things. For example, for typical galaxies, this dark halo contains 90% of the mass. This is no mean quantity. This is like 9 to 1, basically 10 to 1 ratio of regular matter to whatever this dark matter is. It's also much more extended than the starlight because I can see things like satellite galaxies responding to the matter. I can see gas clouds far beyond where stars have formed responding to this matter and moving much faster, and the stars have quit. The stars have faded out against the background sky. In fact, in our own Milky Way, in our local group, and out in nearby small groups of galaxies, I can observe the orbital motions of satellite galaxies orbiting a bigger parent galaxy. In some of those, it appears that they're responding to an increase of matter that continues out to 200 kiloparsecs from the center. The stars run out at 30. So whatever this stuff is, the stars that we see are nothing more than a puddle of ordinary matter at the bottom of these immense dark halos of unseen matter. 
And we call it dark matter simply because it looks dark. So that's the first line of evidence. This is a wonderful set of evidence that was discovered in, in the, basically through the 1950s through the 1960s and 70s by, by one of my favorite astronomers, Vera Rubin, who's, who's been at the Department of Terrestrial Magnetism at the Carnegie Institute of Washington for a very long time. Vera is one of those really great astronomers. I remember first meeting her when I was a graduate student. I'd just gotten my PhD and gone on to a postdoc and gave a talk the first time at the University of Texas. And so there I am sitting in the, and in the front row are two of the real you know, gods of astronomy, Vera Rubin and Gerard de Vaucalours. And they didn't tell me either of those people were going to be in the audience for my talk. Gerard grumped, Vera was extremely nice to me during her visit. So I've always had a great deal. She's been always very good to young astronomers. I've always really admired that. But the other line of evidence actually comes from earlier than the galaxy curves, and it comes from some observations made in 1933 by one of the craziest astronomers of the early 20th century, Fritz Zwicky. He was a Swiss astronomer who was one of the grumpiest men in the universe, according to some people who knew him. He was measuring, using the large Palomar telescope, he was measuring the motions of galaxies in the coma cluster of galaxies. And he was measuring their radial velocities. Now, what you would expect is that the gravity of all the galaxies that make up the cluster cause the galaxies to orbit around the common center of mass of that cluster of galaxies like bees buzzing around a hive. You can measure the Doppler shifts and you catch the how fast some galaxies are coming towards you and how fast some are going away from you relative to the bulk expansion speed. And so you measure that as kind of a spread in velocities, kind of like the spread in a, in a, in a class grade curve. And what he found really shocked him the orbital speeds of some of these galaxies were a thousand kilometers a second relative to the general expansion speed. Not enough to blue shift them, but the peculiar motions due to their local orbital motions were really big, a thousand kilometers a second. And if he added up how much mass should be in, the, in that galaxy cluster by adding up the mass of all the starlight he could see in all the hundreds of galaxies in the coma cluster, a thousand kilometers a second was above the escape velocity for that system which means that these clusters should have simply evaporated away into nothing long ago. So why were the galaxies still bound to clusters? Why were they still there? Why were they still hanging on? And Zwicky had this wonderful flash of insight that nobody believed for more than 30 years. He said the possibility was that, in fact, there's extra matter hiding inside the galaxies that does not, inside the galaxy cluster that does not emit light, and that that matter, when I add it to the visible matter, and he called it dark matter, in fact, he used the German word dunkelmaterie, he can predict if the galaxies are bound to the cluster, how much should be there, and he was shocked by finding it should be more than 90% of the mass of the cluster. Believe it or not, nobody believed Twicky in, in his dark matter idea. In fact, they even distorted his idea by calling it the missing matter as a way of either not understanding it or perhaps even mocking it. But Zwicky stuck to his guns for the rest of his life, and it turns out he was correct. And he not only coined the term dark matter, but he correctly, correctly identified it. Subsequent observations that can better assay the total gas content of clusters of galaxies shows that 90% is a lower bound. In fact, 90 to 99% of the mass in clusters of galaxies is not the visible light we see in our photographs, but probably consists of this mysterious dark matter. Here's an example of this. In fact, the coma cluster. It's a beautiful visible light picture of the coma cluster, a pair of very bright elliptical galaxies. Almost all the galaxies you see in this field are parts of the coma cluster. That's just a foreground star in our own Milky Way. 
If I zoom in on this box, this is a beautiful picture taken a couple of years ago with the Chandra Orbiting X-ray Observatory, and it shows that in X-ray ga- wavelengths, you do see the two bright galaxies here. Those are those two spots. But the rest of the space is filled with extremely hot gas with temperatures of about 10 million to 100 million degrees Kelvin. When you look at this gas, it's so hot that if the mass of the galaxies was all we saw, the visible light, that gas would easily just evaporate away as sort of a supergalactic wind, and yet it appears to be confined inside the cluster. That X-ray gas could not stay there unless there was enough total gravity in the cluster to hang on to it, just like there's enough gravity on the Earth to hang on to its atmosphere. But if I go to Mercury, Mercury can't hold on to its atmosphere because it's too hot and it's too low gravity. So something else is holding not only the galaxies in the cluster, but the hot gas. And even when I add all those components, I need something like 90 to 99% of the mass of the the galaxy cluster to be completely invisible to every wavelength I can observe. The other line of evidence is if I look towards clusters of galaxies and take beautiful pictures like this beautiful deep Hubble Space Telescope picture, Einstein's general theory of relativity tells me that light bends when it passes around mass. So galaxies in the background, behind the cluster of galaxies, as their light passes through, it will actually get bent and distorted like a kind of funhouse mirror. And sure enough, if you look at the deep pictures of the clusters, you see these little blue scraps, see these arcs, that all seem to have the center of curvature of the arc points towards the large mass concentration. Here's an arc here. You notice the curve of the arc is pointing back towards the center. A pair of arcs here, pointing back here another pair of arcs here and here, and they all sort of seem like they're swirling around the center of this galaxy. What you're seeing is regular pictures of galaxies that have been distorted and smeared by the gravitational lensing effect. The amount of bending is proportional to the amount of mass in the cluster. So if I add up the amount of bending and say, how much matter do I need in the cluster to give me that amount of bending from general relativity, I get exactly the same proportion of dark matter to visible matter that I predict from the X-ray gas, and that I predict from the motions of the galaxies and the clusters. So multiple lines of evidence can be brought to bear to show that galaxy clusters are way heavier than I would have guessed just by adding up all the starlight and gas. We call this material dark matter generically, okay, because it simply cannot be detected with light. It only makes its presence known to us because it has mass, and mass gravitates. It produces orbital motions of galaxies, it confines hot X-ray gas into the halos, and it causes the gravitational lensing effects. The basic lines of evidence that we have for this, of course, are as we've seen, the outer parts of galaxies rotate faster than expected from their starlight. There's more matter inside the galaxies than what I see. Similarly, galaxies and clusters orbit faster than I would expect if I just added up all the starlight in those two. The hot X-ray gas is confined, which would otherwise have evaporated away, which means some gravity is confining it and holding it in place. Well, we've described what the effects of this dark matter are, but what is it? Okay, it's one thing to identify that there is an extra mass component, to assert correctly so far that it's invisible to light, and we can measure its effects, but what is it actually made of? Is it made of the same stuff as us, or is it something different? So what is the dark matter? There's two basic ideas for what the dark matter could be. One of these is called baryonic dark matter, which is to say that actually dark matter is just ordinary matter like you and I are made of. Protons, neutrons, electrons, and that stuff. 
The various ways you can put matter into these unseen forms is to spread it out into a lot of little tiny things that either A, don't produce a lot of light individually, or B, if they're black holes, don't produce light at all. Some candidates that have been suggested are brown dwarfs, failed stars, and Jupiter-sized planets in gigantic abundance. Cold stellar remnants. White dwarfs, neutron stars, and black holes contain an awful lot of mass, but in a super compact, super faint form. Maybe we just miss it. Maybe we're just overlooking it because we're not looking faint enough. Crazier ideas are things like primordial black holes. There's one idea that little tiny mountain-sized, asteroid-sized black holes come popping out of the Big Bang. Well, that isn't so favored anymore, but it was one idea people looked at because they were getting pretty desperate. The other one is frozen hydrogen snowballs. Let's really get desperate. Let's take the hydrogen and make it into a form which we really have never observed before, but maybe can exist in abundance. The problem with all of these baryonic dark matter is it's really going to be hard to measure it. We have to look for its gravitational effect because individually we're not going to see the individual things. Collectively, the, can the best candidate people have come up with for baryonic dark matter is that these things are massive compact halo objects, uh, known as machos for short. The massive compact part is because they're small and you've packed a lot of mass into a small volume. They've got a lot of gravity on their surfaces, if you will. A black hole, a neutron star, a white dwarfs are good candidates for machos, as are Jupiter-sized planets. Uh, we're going to skip the primordial black holes and frozen snowballs for a while. And then they're halo objects because they tend to live in the spherical halos of galaxies rather than in the disk. Well, I'm going to just describe many ways people have tried to do this, but one of them I'm going to pick out in particular is gravitational microlensing. This is where you have a macho buzzing through the halo, and you're looking at background stars in a nearby companion galaxy, like the Large Magellanic Cloud, and one of these halo machos, and there have to be a whole bunch of them, because remember, they make up 90% of the mass of the galaxy. Every now and then, one of them passes exactly between me and a background star. When that happens, general relativity tells me that the light will bend around the macho, and light rays, which were normally going off in the other direction, bend down towards the Earth, and the background star brightens a little bit and then fades out in a very characteristic pattern. I call that a gravitational microlensing event. Now, these chance alignments are going to be extremely rare, and so I'm going to have to look at a whole lot of stars. They're probably all going to last for a couple of weeks, so I've got to look continuously at one part of the sky. And because I might expect maybe a one in a million chance per year of seeing one, if I'm going to see one per year, I better look at one million stars minimum. If I want to see ten per year, I better look at ten million stars and so forth. So that's the kind of calculation you'd go. If, if the halo of our Milky Way was completely composed of Jupiter-sized or half-solar-mass white dwarfs or Jupiter-sized planets, then I would expect if I store, stared at millions of stars, maybe five or ten per year would suddenly show one of these microlensing events. Now, I don't have millions of stars in the halo, but I can look to the large Magellanic or small Magellanic clouds, which are 50 and 60 kiloparsecs away, and they contain millions and millions of stars. And so I take a big, gigantic electronic camera, and I just go bang, 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 just take picture after picture, night after night, for the whole time they're up, looking at about 12 million stars for about six years. There was a project called the Macho Project, which did this for six years. They only came up with between 13 and 17 plausible halo microlensing events. Now, they were expecting that many per year, and they got that many maybe in six years.
One of the people who did this analysis, by the way, was an old ex-graduate student of our program, Peter Piotr Popowski. The most recent analysis of the six-year macho project data is that you can set limits on a mass range between 0.15 and 0.9 solar masses. Now, this is kind of white dwarf to red dwarf size. It's much bigger than Jupiter's. And maybe up to about 20% of the mass of our halo. That doesn't do it. And even the 20% might be being a little bit generous because we're really not sure how many of these microlensing events actually were from objects in the halo. Some fraction of them, the reason why there's a range there, it's like, well, didn't you see it or didn't you, is there were hundreds of microlensing events observed, but most of those were found to be due to stars in our own galaxy, we can actually see the stars, or were plausibly due to stars in the LMC itself. So it's a very difficult problem. But the bottom line is, this is a huge effort. Many, many people, many, many years of effort has shown that at most 20% of the halo of our galaxy can be made up of compact baryonic matter. Now, this was never really the favored way of doing it because there's all kinds of problems with baryonic matter. Let's say I wanted to make up the dark matter with white dwarfs. It's easy to do. White dwarfs are small, faint, and they're about a half a solar mass a crack. So it'd be perfect. The problem is white dwarfs were once stars in the distant past. So if I look out into the distance, when I look into the distant past in the universe, I should see the starlight from when those white dwarfs or black holes were stars. We don't see that much starlight in the past. Furthermore, to get from a star to a white dwarf, you have to go through nuclear fusion. You have to make metals. Well, if you're going to make a white dwarf, where are all the metals that were made in the process of making those white dwarfs or neutron stars or black holes? And you've got to make them in huge abundance. They've got to outnumber the present stars in our galaxy by 9 to 1 or more. Well, you can't hide the metals. So we don't see the products of an ancient class of stars. We don't see the light from the ancient class of stars. It really doesn't work very well. There's lots of problems. So then people decide, well, when the going gets rough, the rough get a little bit exotic. Non-baryonic dark matter. Some particle, fundamental particle physics theories predict classes of particles that do not interact with electromagnetic radiation at all. They just don't see light. They don't produce light. They don't react to it passing by them. What they do, however, is they, they have mass, so they have gravity, and they can interact with each other through the weak nuclear force, or maybe even through the strong nuclear force, but the weak nuclear force is actually more likely. Examples of this are massive neutrinos. We've talked about neutrinos as essentially massless, but some people think that in the Big Bang, one of the, some of those episodes where the different forces decouple could in fact lead to the decoupling of massive neutrinos. There's lots of names for these, sterile neutrinos and things like that. They have to come out of certain particle theories. The other class of these dark matter particles, non-baryonic matter, are extremely exotic particles that come out of some particle theory calculations. Now, it's kind of funny to hear me talk about different particle theories, plural. The reason for that is we don't have a fully self-consistent theory of the strong and weak nuclear force. We cannot predict things like... Why does the electron have the mass and charge that it does? You'd think that a fundamental particle theory would explain that. We don't, because we still can't experimentally distinguish among a number of different competing ideas. That's why people are building the next generation of big colliders, to try to test some of these ideas. Some of those theories predict new families of particles which would be possibly created in 
in particle accelerators, some of which have the properties that I would want for a dark matter particle. They're massive, so they have lots of gravity, and they only weakly interact with matter, so they'd be invisible to electromagnetic radiation, to light. Collectively, these have been called weakly interacting massive particles, or WIMPs. This name was actually thought up as a um, the, the term macho for massive halo compact object actually comes from the same generation of, as the WIMPs acronym. So this is kind of astronomers and physicists sort of playing games with kind of dueling acronyms here. So when you think machos, you sort of immediately hear Arnold Schwarzenegger's voice and WIMPs, uh, pick your favorite wimpy person to uh, put, put in for that voice. Many years ago, one of my, one of my colleagues, when I was in grad, graduate school with him, decided to show that, that the Germans could do it one better, and they came up with one of those wonderful long German words for these things. It's, um, I'll take a deep breath for this one, Schwachwechselwirrende Masserreiche Elementarteilchen, and that's all one word. So this is, people have been having a lot of fun with this, but there really is some seriousness in it. The problem of finding the particle dark matter is it's even going to be harder, because these things are going to be extremely, even though they make up most of the mass of the universe, they're extremely thin on the ground, because they're all spread out. So we don't expect too many of them to be passing through our solar system at any given time. And when they do, they don't interact with matter very strongly except through gravity. So they're going to be really hard to detect. You need really gigantic detector masses. You need super sensitive detectors. People are using things like superconducting quantum interference devices, a.k.a. squids as they're called for short, buried inside of deep mines, inside of, of uh, deep dams and things like that to back out the particle, the particle backgrounds. We can estimate the masses of neutrinos. They have to be really, really tiny. Right now, the limits on the electron neutrino are like, you know, less than almost a, less than a thousand at the mass of the electron, and that's just a limit. So you'd have to have a whole bunch of neutrinos to do this. There's particle accelerator experiments that are trying to verify one or the other particle theories to see some of these particles, to create them in the few brief moments of producing conditions in the, in the collider which are consistent with the conditions in the Big Bang that would have produced these particles. We also can look for these things hitting the Earth. And there's various experiments which have been proposed and are being carried out to look for maybe one event every two or three years. That's how rare these things are. So far, there have not been any convincing detections. There have been a few claims, but they've never really stood up to close scrutiny because it's just that hard of a problem. And so the searches go on. So at this point, what I can say about dark matter is very simple, that we know it exists in the sense that we see its gravity. We see its effect on the rotations of stars and galaxies and the orbits of galaxies, uh, gas clouds and galaxies. We see it in the orbits of galaxies and clusters of galaxies. We see it in the hot X-ray halos that we see in clusters of galaxies. There's lots and lots of dynamical gravitational orbital evidence for the presence of dark matter. But we still do not know what it is. We are getting a good idea of probably what it isn't in the last few years. We still don't know what it is. And this is a huge growth area in the future of astrophysics to really identify the dark matter. We've established its presence. And in fact, models of how galaxies form and how structure formed in the universe can actually set constraints on it because it tells you how many types of galaxies should appear in certain places. Those beautiful movies of matter sort of condensing by gravity out of the Big Bang. That actually, depending upon the type of dark matter you use, makes very specific predictions as to what the pattern of matter should be in the universe. And projects like the Sloan Digital Sky Survey are measuring that. So this is a very much on the frontiers of astrophysics. 
Maybe in a few years we'll be able to show you a picture of what we think a dark matter particle looks like, because we'll actually have identified it. That'll be a huge discovery. That's like an instantaneous Nobel Prize. So the search goes on. Well, if dark matter wasn't bad enough, we know sort of a little about dark matter. We know even less about the nature of dark energy. Now, dark energy has been suggested by observations we saw last week. If we use type 1a supernovae as very, very distant standard candles to make independent measurements of the distances of distant galaxies reaching back all the way to when the universe was <coughs> getting close to a few billion years old, what we find is that in the distant past, galaxies are ex the recession speeds of galaxies are slower than what I would have expected for a normal Big Bang which is ma dominated by matter. In a matter-dominated Big Bang universe, I expect that the recession speeds are rapid in the past, and as the gravity of the universe pulls against all the other gravity, the recession speed, the expansion, begins to slow down. So on average, if I look around me today, the recession speeds will be slower compared to their, where they are in the past. But in fact, when I look into the past, what I see is the recession speeds were slower in the past, not faster. Exactly the opposite, which is telling me that the universe is in fact accelerating. And if I put all the data together, we live in an infinite, spatially flat universe, which is accelerating. There is this dark energy, or omega lambda term, which is bigger than the omega matter term. The extra expansion is being caused by this dark energy. Basically what dark energy is, is an extra energy that fills up the universe and it acts to inflate the universe a bit. <coughs> it's sometimes tempting to think of dark energy as a pressure. I often do that. Of course, my wife is a cosmologist and when I use those words in a sentence, she went, oh, eek, for good reason. Pressure is the bad word. Yeah, okay, it kind of can look like it in the equations, but if I say pressure, you think of someone blowing up a balloon in pressure gradients. That's the wrong idea. What you want to think of it is sort of an energy that fills the universe and it kind of pushes against the space-time and makes it move apart. Makes the space-time expand faster than it would just from the initial kick it gets from the Big Bang. This is the data. This is the evidence. It's a little bit older version of it. This is the deviation from the expected matter-dominated expansion, the red curve, that I observe in the supernova 1a distances. The red shift here is the recession speed and this difference here is the difference between my expectation and observations. And I see that the green curve, which goes through the data points better than the red curve, is consistent with omega matter of 0.3 and omega lambda of 0.7, whereas the red curve is just purely omega matter of 0.3 and no cosmological expansion term, no dark energy term. So the evidence for this is actually getting better. The, the new data, this is data from, the, from early 2000, the newer data is a whole lot better than this. So what is the dark energy? Well. To be frank, we know, as I said before, we know way less about the dark energy than we do about the dark matter. We've only just come to terms with the accelerating universe, but we still don't know enough about the nature of that acceleration to distinguish among different possibilities for dark energy. But it basically boils down to two types. The first of these is a cosmological constant, a lambda. This is the traditional, this is the quantum variation on the theme of Albert Einstein's greatest blunder. Not so much a blunder, but what's saying is that the cosmological constant, this extra energy term, is the energy of the vacuum from quantum mechanics, but that the en density of that energy is constant over cosmic time. That's why we call it a cosmological constant kind of dark energy.
So what that would predict is in the distant past, when the density of matter was higher, that dominates the expansion. As we come into the present age, matter begins to become more spread out, and the cosmological constant term of the expansion begins to come into play and begin the epoch of acceleration. In fact, the epoch of acceleration probably began about nine billion, eight, nine billion years ago in round numbers. The other term, for lack of a better word, is not a cosmological constant, which doesn't sound so good, so we'll just call it generic dark energy. It means every other form of dark energy that's not a cosmological constant. It's a version of dark energy that could vary in density, in energy density, over cosmic time. There's some various things this could be. One way is to do it with something the particle physicists call scalar fields. There are certain classes of scalar field theories that actually predict a cosmological expand energy term that actually increases over time. It has a particular so that the acceleration will actually begin to accelerate in certain terms. Another version is the fifth essence of the universe called quintessence somewhat jokingly by the theorists, which is to say they don't know either, but it's some kind of other energy field that is more than just the constant energy density of the background. These two sound completely crazy, but in fact, they're testable. You can actually test these hypotheses. The reason is because if the cosmological constant is actually the right description of dark energy, that will tell us that the rate of acceleration will be constant over cosmic time. If I measure the rate of acceleration now, I measure the rate of acceleration at successively different times in the past, I will see that that rate of acceleration is essentially constant. However, if it's one of these other forms of dark energy where the strength of the dark energy term changes with time, if you will, the energy density of that term changes with time, then what I will find is the rate of acceleration will either grow or in some cases shrink over time. So I can have accelerating acceleration and slightly decelerating acceleration. Yeah, okay, that sounds kind of crazy, but that's actually testable. The problem is, in order to begin to even test that, I have to be able to measure cosmic distances to a precision of better than 1%. All the techniques that I possess now, with very, very few exceptions, are good to the 10% level. So we're going to need a factor of 10 improvement in precision. But there are people who think we can do it, and they're starting to propose experiments for the next couple decades to actually begin testing the question of dark energy. So we don't know a whole lot now, but this is the beauty of the, of the idea. It's testable. Even though I know nothing now, I know how to ask the questions to get those answers in the future. So if we go back down, sort of do a final assay, this is what the content of the universe looks like. We, stars and stuff like that associated with stars, are the thin yellow wedge of this pi diagram. The red wedge is the remaining gas that is not yet formed into stars. The dark wedge is appropriately dark matter, and the biggest slice of the pie, some 70%, is the vacuum energy of the universe. It's kind of humbling. Not only are we not the same matter as the universe, but matter is not even the primary stuff of the universe. Well, I want to end with a very radical suggestion. One possibility is that dark matter and dark energy don't even exist at all, and that in fact what this is telling us is that our theory of gravity is wrong on, wrong on large scales. That's a pretty radical idea, and it's permitted. And we'll pick that up later in some day. Okay. Oops. <laughs>